really wish I could see your faces. <laughs> this is a little bit difficult for me. Um, but I'll just have to pretend that Tim is as good looking as the rest of you are. <laughs> no, I am. Um, I'm so excited when we can meet together and I am convinced that that will be so, so, so good. But until then, here we are. And I'm hopeful that my message is going to provide something good for you today. So, as you know now, I'm a psychologist and my job is to help people through pain. And the pain that I'm referring to is psychological pain. So, although this can include complexity, it often and usually includes things like stress, exhaustion, irritability, frustration, loneliness, longing, hopelessness, overwhelm, difficulties adjusting, difficulties persevering, uncertainty, and doubt. And I think that there's a lot of this kind of pain in our nation at the moment. Maybe some of you are experiencing this kind of pain too. Early in my career, when I was experiencing the pain of my clients and, and responding prayerfully, I used to pray these prayers to God that were more like demands. And they were demands because I only offered him a single solution in response to the pain. And the solution was that he had to remove the pain as quickly and as completely as possible. And of course, I rejoiced when he did this. But most of the time, he didn't. And I found myself imploring him for a deeper understanding of his goodness um, regarding the pain of, of my clients, of people that I loved. Um, over time, I came to realize that my perception of his goodness only permitted the absence of pain. But what if pain presents an opportunity to meet with God? To meet with him in a way that perhaps we could only meet with him because the pain is present. Well, my aim this morning is not to provide conclusive and exhaustive answers to these questions. However, I am hopeful that what I share today can give you, uh, an op gives you an opportunity to see pain a little differently and maybe to see God a little differently too. The most repeated instruction in the Bible is fear not. Some sources say that this appears in the Bible 365 times. I used to think that the way to respond to this instruction was to swiftly shut down to anxiety whenever I detected it in my body. However, rather than producing a fear-free life, instead, I became significantly disconnected from how some of my choices and experiences were actually affecting me. Given what I know now about how anxiety presents in our bodies, I think that fear not is an invitation to connect with God when we're afraid. Mm. And in that connection, there's this invitation to engage in a process where we acknowledge our fears and use them as guides for our healing. 
I believe this is possible because I believe that God designed our bodies and so I believe that our bodies are good. This includes our fear response. We do not have to condemn, shame or hate ourselves for feeling fear. The reason that we feel fear is because of an important part of anatomy in our brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is triggered when we're in danger. And when it's triggered, it releases adrenaline into our bloodstream. This is the fight or flight response. Adrenaline functions as fuel in our bodies and temporarily makes us more energized and more powerful, which increases our chances of surviving the danger. And this is a good thing. However, because the job of the amygdala is to protect us, it is conservative in its estimation of what is threatening. So it's not just triggered by physical danger, it's also triggered by the perception of danger. Our worries, our catastrophic thoughts, our negative predictions about the future, these are all perceptions of danger that activate the fight or flight response within us. And so our body receives this surge of adrenaline, but because we don't have any fighting or flighting to actually do, because there is no physical danger, instead, that adrenaline gets stored in our bodies and it becomes anxiety. Sickness in our stomach, tight muscles, shallow breathing, breathlessness, trouble sleeping, disrupted appetite, overreacting, negativity, hazy mind, irritability, overthinking, overwhelm. These experiences are all classic anxiety experiences and they are disruptive. They are also unwanted and so we tend to do all kinds of really unhelpful things to try to make our anxiety go away. Um, things like pretending that it's not happening or criticizing ourselves for having it or withdrawing from people that we need to connect with or getting really busy or drinking too much or eating too little or spending way too much time scrolling on our phones. Generally speaking, we harm rather than help our bodies. And so we miss the opportunity to use our anxiety to understand what we need. Sometimes what we fear is what has previously hurt us. This is particularly true of irrational fears. So here, anxiety can act as a signpost to an area of our life that needs healing. Other times, we fear what we can't control. Many of us have learned to feel safe in the world by overestimating what we can change or challenge. Problematically, when we try to control things we actually can't, we end up losing control of ourselves. This is anxiety. And yet, in this situation, Anxiety provides an opportunity for us to correct our understanding of our limitations, to accept our limitations, and to deliberately grow in our capacity for self-control. And other times, we fear a future that holds the things we fear most. 
what we tend to do here in order to cope is mentally jump into that future and rehearse how it's going to play out. We deliberately think of worst case scenarios in an effort to feel prepared and so we won't be disappointed. But typically, overly focusing on worst case scenarios prematurely only increases our anxiety of them. Anxiety about the future invites us to live in the grace of today, to pace with the Holy Spirit and not run ahead in our thinking and reacting, which is difficult. It's difficult not to, right? Because when our bodies are so dialed up with adrenaline, so too are our minds. Our thoughts grow faster, there's more of them, and they're more insistent and urgent. This makes reflection and revelation really difficult. Calming our mind requires calming our body, and the way that we do that is to slow down and to make choices that soothe rather than stir up our nervous system. After Elijah fled from Jezebel, God revealed himself to Elijah in a sound of sheer silence, which is the original translation of 1 Kings 19 verse 12. Other translations say things like a still small voice or a gentle whisper that actually doesn't accurately capture the original Hebrew. It was a sound of sheer silence. Silence and stillness for Elijah were full of the presence of God. Perhaps it might be the same for us. When we can slow down enough to pay attention to our anxiety and to consider what it might be communicating to us, perhaps we might also find that we are paying attention to God. So just maybe the underside of fear not is come close. When clients come to see me, something sacred happens. They talk about their pain. It's no longer private, but it's no longer hidden. By being honest with me, they have brought their pain out into the light. Their healing has begun. Being honest about our pain can be really difficult. And sometimes what this indicates is that in some way that pain is not permitted in our lives. Our minds can have subconscious rules about what's okay and what's not when it comes to pain. Some of us may have even grown up learning that emotions like sadness, anger and fear are unacceptable. So we learnt to see these emotions as weak and to suppress them as strength. But based on the science of emotions, we actually can't selectively suppress certain emotions whilst retaining others. To suppress sadness is to suppress joy. Furthermore, when we suppress emotions, we actually activate this amplification effect where the emotion gets bigger inside us and then at some point it erupts usually causing problems for ourselves and for other people. 
American pastor Rich Velotis says, the same Bible that tells me to rejoice always also has a book called Lamentations. <laughs> we don't have to choose one from the other. Good, healthy Christian faith is non-dualistic, able to hold multiple tensions together. In Christian communities, it is a tragedy that people have been taught that experiences like depression, anxiety, grief and anger are incompatible with worship of our God and reflect deficiencies in our faith. I often tell my clients, two things can be true at the same time. Two things that are seemingly opposed can be true at the same time. This is called a paradox, and typically our minds have great difficulty with paradoxes because they are confusing. How can two things that are completely different coexist and be true simultaneously? And so because our minds are confounded by paradoxes, we tend to preference one thing over the others. Often the one thing that we preference is the thing that we believe will allow us to be the version of ourselves that we think will be the most accepted. And so, we might tell a story about how great we're feeling whilst secretly having really painful experiences that we refuse to name. Or we might tell a story about how much we're suffering and deliberately omit the parts of our lives that are good and hopeful. Neither of these stories are truly honest. Two things can be true at the same time. Our grief doesn't need to compete with our gratitude. Our joy doesn't need to mask our sadness. You know, and Jesus exemplified this perfectly. He is the lion and the lamb at the same time. As a practical technique to help you with this, try substituting but for and. So instead of saying, things are hard, but God is good, try saying, things are hard, and God is good. The word and removes competition and invalidation. It may also remove guilt and shame. All parts of your emotional experiences are permitted. And you know, when no part of ourselves is hiding, we can bring all parts of ourselves to God. And when we do that, God can be all things to us. One of my objectives when working with a client is to help them to not add suffering to their pain. Suffering is resisting and fighting pain. Um, and the main way that we do this is mentally. So suffering is all of the ways that we tell ourselves, I can't have this experience. This shouldn't be happening to me. Because thinking is largely automatic, at certain times during our pain, these kinds of thoughts will emerge in our minds and that's absolutely okay and absolutely normal. But Consistent, continuous mental struggle with our pain will only make our pain more painful. 
Instead, we can do something called turning the mind. Turning the mind is an act of willingness. It's choosing to accept what you have to have right now because there is no other way. When we do that, we give ourselves the opportunity to see our pain differently. When you're caught up in the struggle against your pain, your focus will be on that pain and it's very difficult to see anything else. I recently received a text from one of my friends in Queensland. It said, thinking of you during this time, don't forget to access your divine benefits. <laughs> my friend wasn't asking me to deny the reality of my pain. He was inviting me to elevate my thinking. Because the fact is, we're in a lockdown. But the truth is, in Christ, we could not be more free. The fact is, there is injustice and contradiction in our government. The truth is, we are citizens of a perfect feudal system. Our king is the king of all kings. The fact is, there are hard and difficult and painful things that we have to endure at the moment. But the truth is, we also have access to divine benefits because of Jesus Christ. Because our spirit is one with God. Now the truth is not designed to replace or remove the facts. What it is designed to do is elevate our thinking above them. And this is different to just think positive. Sometimes positive thinking can be harmful because it's more like denial. It's a way of mentally resisting our pain. We're pretending like it's not happening. Elevated thinking is a willingness to look at your pain differently. And when Jesus walked the earth, he was often inviting people into elevated thinking. Consider the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. These blessings existed because of these experiences. How might that affect the way that we see our pain? The place that we're headed to doesn't have any pain at all. Heaven. When we arrive, maybe we'll ask Jesus, about all of the painful experiences that we had on earth. You know, we'll get to to present our questions to him about why it had to be the way that it was. And I think that Jesus will be gracious enough to answer. But, just maybe, when we see him face to face, Jesus will be so irresistibly beautiful that all our disappointments heartaches, our losses, our grief, our sorrows, will all be eclipsed. 
and our forever with God will be far better than even our best estimation. Guys, can I encourage you frequently turn your mind towards heaven and let that stir up anticipation in your hearts. Allow it to infuse you with strength and hope to keep going and to keep believing. Let me pray. God, thank you that you are the source of all comfort. Increase our awareness moment by moment of that reality and help us to access that comfort. Reassure us of your commitment and your leading and your commitment to bringing us through. Thank you that your love is powerful enough to heal our internal worlds. We need your love. We want your love. Help us to fasten our gaze upon you and to be truly convinced that you are good. Amen.